From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. While hospitals sound the alarm, Governor Paulus is hopeful that the worst of Omicron is ending. The contagious nature of the way that Omicron burns through rapidly, it leads to a quicker, higher peak and then a slope down that they're already experiencing. And so for now, his administration won't call for crisis care standards in hospitals, nor a mask mandate. I'll explore his thinking further. Polis says he will pursue changes to get insurance payouts to people faster. That's after the Marshall Fire destroyed more than a thousand homes in Boulder County. Immediately, we're going to look at some insurance claim reforms that come out of experiences that some of the families had. Polis is up for re-election, and he's hitting one message especially hard, saving Coloradans money, which his critics are dubious of. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to focus on two fast-moving disasters in our regular interview with the governor, the Omicron wave and last month's Marshall Fire. I sat down with Governor Jared Polis Tuesday. Governor, thank you for being with us again. Ryan, it's great to see you, and it's been a while since we've done this in person, so it's great to to do this in person again and get to see you face-to-face. We tested and are sitting at a big round table in your office at the Capitol. In our last interview, December 10th, you told us when it comes to the pandemic, the medical emergency is over. Since we spoke, Omicron has hit hard, hospitalizations are near the all-time peak, and crisis standards of care are not only in effect for healthcare staffing, but emergency medical services, think ambulances and medics. Do you still believe that the medical emergency is over? Yeah, and it's important to talk about what I was saying. Uh, You know, you might remember in the first days of the pandemic in early 2020, there was a crisis in the sense that we had no masks, no gloves, no equipment, even in hospitals. People had to use the same mask for a week and we had to fight for every ventilator we had. There are now plenty of supplies. Uh, We have capacity. We've been in the, you know, 90, 92, 93% capacity. That's not where the hospital system normally is, to be clear. Normally it's closer to 80%. About 20% of the people in hospitals are for COVID. About 80% of them are for something else. Omicron is more contagious, but thankfully demonstrably less severe. And it can still, if you're unvaccinated, hospitalize you and, and be very difficult. But you know, for those who are vaccinated, of course, you know, like any flu or cold, you don't want to get it, but it usually very seldom would require hospitalization or, or endanger your life. You sound somewhat calm when it comes to the hospital situation, and it's not the note that emergency physicians are sounding. The Colorado chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians has told you, we are at a breaking point. We are currently dealing with conditions that have never been seen in our state. And against that backdrop, they're asking you to activate crisis standards for hospitals, 
which they say will offer certain protections to physicians who have to triage and potentially unlock federal money to help with staffing shortages. Will you declare those crisis standards for hospitals? Well, you know, first of all, everybody is exhausted, Ryan. Of course, first and foremost, our healthcare workers. This has been hard on them. But you know what? It's been hard on teachers. It's been hard on grocery store workers. It's been hard on, I'm sure you as a journalist, I'm not being able to do the same in-person coverage type of events that you uh, are accustomed to. It's been hard on every single Coloradan. As governor, I really sympathize with everybody, what everybody's had to go through this pandemic. And of course, our healthcare work is above and beyond. That's why one of our legislative proposals is to waive uh, the licensing fees for nurses, for mental health professionals, so they won't have to pay to keep their license current, will effectively make their license to practice free for a year uh, as some small show of recognition that also helps their bottom line. So to be clear, you don't have plans at this point to activate crisis standards of care for hospitals. Well, you have to look at how that's done, Ryan. So there is um, a committee called the GERC and our chief medical officer, Dr. Eric France. Um, I have never counteracted or not approved what he has sought. Uh, this but is he, not something that-, that He's not state, seeking This it is anything. not something that the chief medical officer of the state is seeking at this point. I'd like to just play this from Dr. Ricky Dollywall, who's president of the Colorado chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians. We are in a crisis. And the thing about it is that this is a crisis that's now, and it's about to get worse. And so the wait and see approach just, I don't think is a smart way to, to do this in, in this situation. There seems to be a gap between what you think healthcare workers need right now and what they think they need right now. How do you bridge that gap? Well, first of all, if things get worse, he's right. That's what his um, assumption is. My, uh, I think he's also anticipating yeah. incredible burnout so in the what, months to come. To be clear, so workers. what we are seeing from the projections and the data is that we actually expect things to get better. Where we are seeing with Omicron, there are states and there are countries that are two to three weeks ahead of where we are. And we watch very carefully every day and we extrapolate where we expect Colorado to go. You have South Africa three weeks ahead of us, London two weeks ahead of us, and the east coast of our own country seven to 10 days ahead of us. What we see in all those cases is because of the contagious nature of, of the way that Omicron burns through rapidly, it leads to a quicker, higher peak and then a slope down that they're already experiencing in the cities and states that are two to three weeks ahead of us. So we are, we've already seen a stabilization of the positivity rate. Uh, we have already seen a stabilization, meaning the hospital count, at least the last few days has not gone up. It stayed relatively steady, it went up, it went down, it went up, it went down. So the question that he asks, and, and, and I guess the best answer I can give is, God forbid, if he is right and it gets worse, uh, then of course, Dr. France will likely advance the kind of measures that he discussed. If the projections that we're seeing are correct and that it peaks in the next week or so and then decreases, uh, then it's very unlikely those type of measures would need to be taken. The physicians group in its letter says there's a lack of access to rapid testing and that as a result, many patients who are not ill or minimally ill are coming to the emergency department. That adds further stress, they say, and exposes other patients to a potentially lethal disease. Uh, how are you addressing that lack of access to rapid tests? So I want to address that square on, but there's, there's actually two different things here. First of all, test or no test, if you're not severely ill and, and you're mildly ill, you, you should not go to emergency room. I mean, that whether it's COVID or not COVID, if you have 
you know, minor cold-like symptoms, you don't go to an emergency room, to be clear. Now, if your condition's worsen, you have trouble breathing, you're not getting enough oxygen, of course, that's what our healthcare system is there for. So, um, you know, we, as you know, launched uh, a couple things. First of all, we have over 100 community testing sites across the state. Most of the contractors there, because of the increase in demand in testing across the entire country, unfortunately, the processing time has gone up to about two to three days, from one to two days. Two to three days is not ideal, and there's specific incidences where it's been four or five days, which is terrible. Generally speaking, if you go to a community site in two to three days right now, you'll get the result. We hope to get it back down to one to two days. By within when? The, within the next week or so. Uh, we hope to get it back down to under two days, which is our goal, including at the state lab, which is just over two days right now. Um, the other uh, testing program we have, the rapid tests, um, to be clear, these were never designed or marketed as diagnostic tests because even when we first launched it and we had uh, less demand and more supply, we said you'll get them to you in four or five days because what they are for is you get a packet of them and you screen yourself once a week or let's say you're going to visit grandma, you take the test with the family members before you go, that's what they're for. If you're sick, you go to a community testing site, you get tested right away, don't delay. So that program, the free rapid test, which now President Biden and the country are rolling out. We're that's right, they'll be federal, t- tests federally available. Yes, we're, 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 that one is now about a 10 day to two week uh, wait time for when you sign up for one in Colorado and when you get it. Uh, you know, folks are connected to schools might get it a little bit quicker. And that's another one that over the next week or two, we hope to decrease that so people get it within a week of when they request it. How are you doing that? Just briefly. Uh, Increasing supply. So we added another uh, vendor. Uh, Historically, they had been the Binax test. Uh, We now added another one, also very good data about its efficacy, eye health. And so those are going to start being in the mix in the next few days. And that uh, gives us additional supply to send out to people. Last time we spoke, you said that with vaccines being widely available, it is not the state's job to mandate masks. Uh, you leave that to local public health officials. Is that still your position today? Lots of people ask this question each time we speak with you, and I want to make sure it's clear. Yes, I'm nothing if not consistent, Ryan. Um, And we're at 84% vaccination in Colorado. What a wonderful thing. That's the adult vaccination rate. If you add in uh, everybody, it's a little bit lower. But 84% of adults, that's wonderful, are protected. That's been our main message is that while, of course, you don't want to get sick and should, you know, wear masks around others indoors, uh, generally speaking, if you're vaccinated and you're, you're otherwise healthy, this virus is very unlikely to jeopardize your life. Do you think that this Omicron wave and the enormous stress that hospitals are under and that nurses and doctors are under, do you think that would have been less severe if there had been a statewide mask mandate in place? Because we know that masks work too. So what masks can do, obviously on the individual level, is masks can decrease your risk of getting it. And I would add, finally, the CDC caught up with the data and said medical grade masks, because while the cloth mask may have some impact, if you really want to reduce your risk, you should wear, if, you, you know, if you're really worried about your health, you should frankly wear a N95 or KN95. That, that is what doctors in COVID wards effectively wear even before the vaccine, and it was very effective in preventing it. Uh, We're going to be just rolling out in the next day or two, Ryan, breaking it now on your show, making free medical grade KN95 masks available to every Colorado. And so we're doing that at fire stations and libraries where people can pick them up. And we'll be making that map and dates available just in the next day or two about where Coloradans who want free medical grade masks can go and get them so that they can have that comfort when they're out shopping or, or, or when they're doing whatever they're doing. And generally speaking, if you keep your mask 
in good shape. Uh, generally speaking, the health experts say you can wear it for about a week. Um, but now let's talk about population level. So individual level, you know, we know that masks can work. Population level, what they can do, for instance, in Omicron, is they can spread it out a little bit if more people wear masks, but they're not going to reduce the number of people overall that get it before it burns through. So you might have a slightly longer and lower peak for a sustained period of time rather than all than, than having it all at once. And, and right now we have areas of our state that have required indoor mask wearing areas that don't. We don't see a demonstrable difference in the level of COVID transmission in, in those different areas of our state. Uh, just briefly on mandates. So the Biden administration's vaccination requirement for large employers is on hold uh, because of maneuvering by the U.S. Supreme Court. If that's struck down entirely, could you foresee a vaccine mandate in Colorado for large employers? Well, I, I know that there are some large employers that, that have those kinds of requirements. Would you um, take on the Biden mantle, in other words? What we have done for our state workers is that we have 31,000 state workers. We have, uh, you're either vaccinated or you get tested uh, once a week. And so that will continue for now. We hope that there's a time in the next few months if the uh, virus transmission levels get much lower where, uh, where that can go away. But um, in the meantime, our state workers know that they have the assurance that if their person that works with them is not vaccinated, at least they've been tested recently to show that they're not contagious. And we have caught several hundred people that unknowingly uh, had COVID and we were able to prevent them from then infecting others in the state workforce. So it sounds like you think your purview is the state workforce. I don't hear you stepping in and saying other large private employers would face no, a mandate. No, that's, that's okay. really up to them, Got Ryan, it. and and it's a difficult challenge. I know that there's resort and hospitality companies that have generally been more aggressive about requiring vaccinations because they want to reassure their guests that they have. There's other industries where that would probably be devastating, and we've seen the effects on things like construction, law enforcement. Culturally, these are fields that have a lower vaccination rate. And by the way, it's tragic. When we lose a law enforcement officer to COVID unnecessarily because they weren't vaccinated, Absolutely tragic, but we have you know difficulty even maintaining the workforce we have. So it's very unlikely that very many, uh, and I think Denver did this, but very few others across the state would likely go that way of, of actually requiring vaccinations. One last question on COVID. Do you think that you would mandate a third shot for state workers? Right now, it's the first two, not the booster that's mandated. Yeah, and, and we've, you know, I've, I've tried to avoid calling it a booster. I say the three course of vaccines that you need. Uh, what we, the three vaccines are absolutely critical to have a high level of resistance against Omicron uh, and also to refresh your immunity from the two. So uh, that, that that's, third shot is not currently required for state workers, correct? Well, n- none of them are required. If you're not, right, if you're not vaccinated with two, you have to test every week. I think what you're saying it was... Would you up that to three? We, we, we might. Let's move to the deadly Marshall Fire. More than a thousand homes destroyed. Businesses decimated as well. In the aftermath, will your administration push for any specific policy changes? And I, I don't want to limit the scope by any means, but I'm thinking in the realm of land use, building codes, climate policy. Potentially, yes, on all of those. I think immediately we're going to look at some insurance claim reforms that come out of experiences that some of the families had. And so how families can get more, this could happen to any family, whether it's a fire or flood, but how can folks who lose everything have more money released to them up front uh, if they've effectively been totaled and lost? So I think there's some that we're, we're learning even now, stories. There's many for whom the insurance process is working. There's others that we hear various stories for how it can be improved. As you know, unfortunately, any changes made won't necessarily impact those impacted by the Marshall Fire, but they would be in effect going forward. 
you know, I mean, I, I saw your your tweet a few days ago where you quoted uh, my state of the state from 2021 um, when I said, how many homes and businesses must we lose? How many lives before we resolve to meet the threat of climate change with the seriousness it demands? And this event is tragic. Of course, that was in the aftermath of the three largest fires in the history of our state. Um, and that's really why we're, of course, redoubling our efforts to take bold climate action. Uh, one of the things we're seeking this legislative session is a historic investment in pollution reduction and clean air. Uh, in our budget, we outlined over $400 million, very substantial investment in everything from better air monitoring to uh, electric school buses to uh, clean trucks to a variety of other areas where we can make a tangible impact on cleaner air quality and reducing our impact on the climate. While you delivered your State of the State address, there was a counter-protest about climate and people who don't see your efforts as redoubling and, you know, who fundamentally would like to see fewer fossil fuels taken from, from the ground. What do you say to those who believe that the Marshall Fire is an opportunity for change at a breakneck pace in this regard? Uh, well, you know, I didn't get to see that because I was obviously inside giving the speech, so I don't know what they were saying. Uh, but um, look, first of all, let's make sure we don't victimize the victims of the fire. These are people who lost everything they had. While some of them, you know, have different political opinions and it's an area where probably most of them are happy to have a conversation about climate change and what we should do, we need to understand that this is a enormous loss, just as it would be if you lost everything that you owned, Ryan, or I lost everything we owned, and and politicians shouldn't try to use that for other purposes. We should sympathize. Do you think it's politicizing the help. Marshall Fire to ask you about climate change? Uh, you did ask me about climate change. But and you, I, do you think I that's politicizing I, it? Uh, look, as I said, I mean, how many more homes and businesses must we lose before we take bold action on climate change? And that's uh, one of the reasons I ran for governor, a goal of 100% renewable energy by 2040. Uh, we are now on the pathway to be over 80% renewable energy by 2030. Uh, we're going to get there. It's locked in. Uh, and I'm proud to say that electric vehicle sales in our state were 12.8% of all vehicles sold last month. Um, that's up from under 10% from the fourth quarter of last year. So this is moving very quickly, and we're doing everything we can through our clean infrastructure and roads package that we passed last year to our historic uh, investment that we hope to make in air quality this year. There are folks who want you to declare a climate emergency and who wonder if there might be further powers unlocked if you were to do something like that. Uh, we heard this from a climate activist by the name of Zach Burley in Glendale, Austin Hinkle, who teaches physics at Colorado College. Have you considered using emergency powers around climate? Well, we need to beat the climate crisis head on. I think what we have, fortunately, is a legislature here in Colorado, there's Democratic majorities in both chamber, chambers that believe, just as I do, that the climate is an emergency and we need to act on it. So what we do, we do in tandem and we work with our legislative partners. For instance, the governor doesn't have the power of the purse, the power to spend money. That's why we go to the legislature seeking the $400 million investment in air quality. And we and we hope, and we have good allies there, and there's, they take uh, climate change very seriously. We hope they step up and they, uh, they join us in, in doing this. Have leaders in Louisville and Superior reached out to your administration with concerns about their property tax base? 
which is presumably decimated because of the fire. I mean, is that something the state can help with? There's a whole host of concerns. First of all, we've had regular discussions as at I and the staff level with Mayor Folsom, Mayor Salzburg, Louisville, and, and superior mayors, the town staff. We, of course, want to see what we can do as a state on this. I think the other area we want to make sure we help the two towns as well as unincorporated Boulder County, the third jurisdiction here, where homes were destroyed is we want to make sure that people could rebuild as quickly as possible, um, especially challenging given the supply constraints and the labor constraints because for communities to thrive, people need to live there. Parents want to be able to live near their kids' school and live near where they worked and have that quality of life back. So we're working there very closely with them on that as well as any other temporary impacts from loss of revenue. And should they rebuild differently? Uh, well, ultimately, it'll be each homeowner that decides what they do. Um, of course, we want to, as a community, talk about fire resiliency, energy efficiency. Uh, we are hoping, in working with our legislative partners, to have additional funds that can come through to rebuild in a more resilient and energy efficient ma- uh, manner. That there um, would be state help for that? That's one of our proposals that we okay. hope the legislature acts on, is to provide additional state help for better fire resiliency and energy efficiency as people rebuild. Uh, but keep in mind, each person will, of course, be working on rebuilding their own house. Others who want to move on will, will sell that right and that land to somebody else and, and, and move. Now, we focused a lot on homeowners. I want to play this question from Anne Dirksy of Loveland. Hello, Governor. As someone who is displaced by the 2013 floods, I'd like to know what protections are in place for renters after the Marshall Fire. For example, if a renter is living in a damaged home, what is the obligation of the landlord to ensure that FEMA dollars are used for repairs? And finally, how will you prevent landlords from raising rent astronomically to keep renters in their homes? Thank you. So money from FEMA should uh, flow through to the individual that it's designed to impact. There is specific FEMA programs around rental assistance. We also have additional state help on those rental issues. There were a number of areas, especially in the Sagamore um, development, which was completely destroyed. A number of those units were long-term rentals. And so um, there's a specific set of issues that renters face. And uh, we're going to use all the flexibility that we can uh, to help make sure that they have a place to live and that they're uh, held harmless to the extent possible for uh, the damage to uh, the place that they were renting. I want to ask you about a major theme of your recent State of the State address, a theme that has continued in events and press releases since, and that is saving Coloradans money. You paraphrased the Paul Simon song saying, you have 50 ways to save people money. Governor, you're also facing re-election, and so I gather that this is going to be a thrust of your campaign as well. I'm going to put this starkly. Are you essentially saying, vote for me, Coloradans, I'm going to line your pockets, and here's 50 ways I'll do it? I'm going to give you 50 ways to save you money. Um, It's nothing new to us, Ryan. This is the very DNA of who I am in our administration. You might recall one of my first acts was to create the Office of Saving People Money on Healthcare, big cost. We've delivered reducing rates in the individual market for healthcare by 24% out-of-pocket and insulin drugs. It's kind of looking at all these big cost pockets that people have and saying, how can we reduce fees? How can we save you money? Last year, I signed um, the uh, landmark... 
uh, transportation bill that reduced um, vehicle registration fees by over $11 per vehicle. Uh, now what we're seeking is continuing that. We might want to make it free to start a business in Colorado, right? No incorporation fees, free to start a business. This has been part of our agenda from the start. I think we really put it in the focus now when families are feeling more crunched than ever with costs going up on consumer goods, with gas at $3.80 a gallon. People just want some relief, and uh, we're excited to work creatively with Republicans and Democrats to do it. Republicans say that Democrats are contributing to the crunch people feel. You mentioned the landmark transportation legislation last year, which, while it may have reduced some fees, also placed new ones on gasoline. Republicans are saying, oh, well, one of your ideas to save people money is to reverse the fees you, Governor, signed into law last session. How do you respond? Well, look, I mean, they, you know, the Republicans voted in mass against many of the ways we want to save people money, whether it's the Colorado option, whether it's prescription drug, uh, negotiating for better rates. Um, not a single Republican supported any of those. Of course, Republicans also have good ideas on uh, reducing fees and saving money. We just want to take the best from both parties. And um, of course, in the long run, we all know we need to pay for our roads. There's no question. Uh, in fact, that was a bipartisan bill I signed. And you're right. What it did is it reduced vehicle registration fees, but it in indexed the gas fee, which would slowly go up over time. Which now you want to reverse. Absolutely, because we're saying now's not the time, right? Um, This is a fine policy to avoid inflation uh, negating any funds for our roads, but you don't do it when gas is three eighty dollars a gallon and families are struggling. So absolutely, now's the time to to push that ahead and and avoid any any gas fee increases when, when families are hurting. Before we go, King Super's workers are on strike. Points of contention include wages, workplace safety... Uh, Yes or no, are you avoiding the stores during the strike, Governor? I am. I, I don't. I don't cross the picket line, and uh, I hope that the workers are able to negotiate better safety, better health care, uh, better wages. And I, you know, most of all, as a Coloradan, I hope that both sides can get this done quickly uh, for the convenience of, of Coloradans who want to shop again at King Supers and are inconvenienced. Is there any sense that your administration would intervene at all as mediator? Uh, we 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 don't have that legal authority. Okay. It's it's a, under the federal jurisdiction. Governor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Always a pleasure. Nice to see you in person again. Democratic Governor Jared Polis recorded Tuesday. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. From CPR News and KRCC, I'm Ryan Warner. Running a restaurant was challenging before the pandemic. For the ones that have survived, COVID's made it even trickier. I'm CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland. And I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. We'll bring you a day in the life of a restaurant, from the difficulties of finding servers and broccoli... ...to the juggling act of running a small business while raising a family. Your table is ready on Colorado In-Depth, available everywhere you get your podcasts, and on the Colorado Public Radio app. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Typically, home prices dip in the fall and winter. Colder temperatures mean fewer people are house shopping. But along the front range, that's just not the case. Home prices in Metro Denver and Colorado Springs in December stayed at all-time record highs. Realtors and economists predict the trend will continue. CPR's Dan Boyce looks into why. Realtor Ann Kidd says she's seen it all. The early 2010s, really good for Colorado home buyers. The Great Recession made many sellers hungry, even desperate to offload their homes. And where we are today is exactly 180 from that. 
Right now, the Colorado Springs housing market reaching record high prices. Denver's real estate market broke 16 records. People are still buying them tonight. When will home prices settle down a bit? Kid also chairs the Pikes Peak Association of Realtors. Um, I pulled numbers this morning. And she describes the pricing surge as an issue both complex and at the same time Econ 101 level basic. More people have moved into Colorado Springs in recent years, attracted by its proximity to the outdoors. Used to be they also liked the area's affordability, but that's no longer. If they're looking to buy a home now in the area, there's just not enough supply to keep prices low. Just, we're going to talk about a three-bedroom, two-bath home. Your average, typical uh, American dream. The number of those homes in the Pikes Peak region on sale right now for less than a half million dollars? 29 homes available. We have 4,600 realtors and we have 29 active listings or at least again 29 family homes in a price range most families might be able to afford important to point out the same house in denver is on average about one hundred thousand dollars more expensive than in the springs also we're talking about existing homes here can't new home construction save the day with new supply well with this, we have all kinds of other complications. Independent economist Elliot Eisenberg worked for the National Association of Home Builders for about a dozen years in D.C. So I've been thinking about housing for a long time. I'm a houser, as they call it. Yeah, is that what they call it? You're a houser. Yeah, you think about housing, you care about housing, you love housing, it, it drives you. Supply chain issues are definitely real for new construction, especially in the short term. This is happening right as the millennial generation is looking to own. This is the biggest cohort in U.S. history of people about to age into home buying. This is a golden period for the home builders. They can sell everything they make. This is the market screaming, build more. Great. So once the supply chain issues are worked out, all home builders have to do is build, right? They just, they can't. They're prevented. It's, it's county rules, it's, it's city rules, it's county commissioner rules, it's impact fees, it's a thousand things. All these rules, well, yeah, they were put in place for reasons to ensure safe building practices, to maintain the traditional character of certain neighborhoods, to only allow certain types of housing in certain areas or only so many properties per lot. Colorado Springs City Council member Yolanda Avila bought her home more than 15 years ago. The price? It's more than doubled. It would be even difficult for me to be able to purchase that home now. The district Avila represents in the southeast part of the city holds the zip code ranked as the hottest housing zip code in the entire country last year. She remembers when the area used to be affordable. Still, she defended the level of regulation, saying she spoke to a developer not too long ago who told her Colorado strikes the right balance. She goes, like, if I go to Oklahoma, I'm, I can do build anything. And sometimes I don't feel really good about that. But in Colorado, it's not too burdensome with regulation. And at the same time, it creates this amount of safety and where they could be proud of their work. Asking the economist Eisenberg, he says it's probably best not to expect a housing downturn, rather to hope Colorado's current flaming hot market cools. Cooling is a, is a good term. I think it never gets cold. 
At least, he thinks, likely not until the end of the decade. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Earlier in the show, we talked about infrastructure in the state, transportation in particular. Let's look back now at one of this country's biggest infrastructure rollouts, the westward expansion of the Postal Service in the late 1800s. Interesting fact, at one point, the USPS had double the locations it has today. In his book, Paper Trails, CU Denver historian Cameron Blevins writes about this rapid and far-reaching expansion. He says it also facilitated a larger process of colonization. That's as the U.S. Post helped accelerate the seizure of native territory. Let's listen back to our conversation from July. Cameron, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. You describe the early Postal Service in the West as a gossamer network. And I, I love that word gossamer, delicate, fine, ephemeral, kind of conjures up spider webs or angel's wings. And yet you call this expansion both gossamer and rapid and far-reaching and a colonizing force. That sounds like a paradox to me. How can something be uh, delicate, fine, ephemeral, and so transformational? It's a great question, Ryan. I'm actually going to turn around and ask you a question. Um, okay. How often do you go to your local post office? I go quite a bit because I'm a postcard writer. Oh, a postcard connoisseur. And okay. So I need to buy postcard stamps, forever yeah. stamps, with some frequency. So I'm assuming when you go to the post office, this is a standalone building. There's staffed by USPS employees wearing uniforms. Um, and that did not look anything like the U.S. postal system in the 1800s. So the experience of going to your local post office uh, for the vast majority of people, if you did not live in a major city, involved going to what was often your general store down the street, and the store owner would pass out letters across the counter. And this is what I mean by a gossamer network in the sense that it was a much more lightweight kind of infrastructure. But because of that, it allowed the overall network to expand really, really rapidly across the Western United States and the country uh, at large. So you didn't need the kind of big overhead and infrastructure of a bricks and mortar post office in every town. It was as nimble as, you know, Fred's hardware in town. Exactly. So Fred uh, would be the local postmaster, let's say, and he'd get paid, you know, let's say 50 bucks a year by the federal government to again hand out letters. Um, And this allowed the U.S. postal system to establish new offices in really distant places fairly quickly. But then the other piece of this, what I mean by Gossamer, uh, is a lightweight uh, and it was capable of melting away as well. So if Fred went out of business, let's say, yeah. uh, that post office could shut down within a matter of weeks or move to down the road to uh, John's uh, hardware store, right? So it's a much more flexible and ephemeral uh, system than we're used to in the 21st century. Although you assumed that my post office was its own bricks and mortar building, and it's actually a substation that's in a local grocery store in my neighborhood. Oh, interesting. Which, yeah. which, which is kind of like history repeating itself. Absolutely. You're that actually seeing say, a reemergence of some of these older models uh, of the postal system today, which is interesting. Yeah, a kind of reinvention that it doesn't always have to be that bricks and mortar post office. You are a digital historian, Cameron Blevins. What does that mean? And tell us about the data set you found from a passionate philatelist, which is what we call stamp collectors. 
Right. Uh, digital history is effectively using any kind of uh, computational technology to study or teach the past. And historians, as, as a rule, are usually a little bit more hesitant to embrace maybe new forms of technology, perhaps not surprisingly. But what I do is use things like GIS mapping software to study uh, patterns in the past. So in the case of my book, a lot of the analysis was based on this really incredible data set that was collected by a uh, stamp collector named Richard Helbach, who spent decades uh, looking at archival records and then coming up with a database of about 166,000 post offices that operated in the United States. Some of these very ephemeral, as you were saying. Exactly. And I was able to get that from him and unfortunately passed away before uh, I ever got a chance to meet him. But that data set then became the basis for a lot of spatial analysis, where you can map out on a year-by-year basis where all these tens of thousands of post offices are located, where they're opening, where they're closing, and start to see some of these larger spatial patterns that are really defining Western expansion during the 1800s. And your book, Paper Trails, The U.S. Post and the Making of the American West, is filled with maps that show the evolution of the post office over time. And I think it very notably reveals who did not have service and who was underrepresented. We'll talk about that in a bit. But one famous mail service from the 19th century West was the Pony Express. But you write that it is largely based in myth. And it was around for less than two years. That was really an epiphany for me. Can you explain that? Sure. I think this is a record. We've gone uh, at least five minutes without talking about the Pony Express. That's usually one of the first, the first questions. questions. Uh, right. When you when you write a book about Western mail, that's the first and only thing people usually know. You sound slightly annoyed by it, I have to say. No, no, not at all. <laughs> what I mean, I think, by the Pony Express, and it's actually a fascinating topic in that I think it is probably one of the most successful brand names in American history. The fact that all of us know about this, you know, 160 years after the fact. And what's fascinating to me is that that doesn't necessarily line up with the reality or impact of the service at the time. So this was a private business venture that was started right before the Civil War. And the idea was they would operate uh, a mail route across the central United States, across the plains and mountains to connect California to the eastern United States, and then use a system of relay stations with horse riders. It would cut the mail time in half, roughly, and speed up service. The problem was that this was phenomenally expensive, right? You needed 100 horses, relay riders, stations, feed, all sorts of stuff. And so they had to correspondingly charge a phenomenally large amount of money for each letter. So in today's, uh, today's equivalent money would be somewhere between 100 and $150 to send a letter, anywhere from 10 to 50 times more expensive than a normal letter that was sent via uh, the U.S. Postal Channel. My goodness. The time. Right. And so it was financially speaking, it was a disaster. They just kind of hemorrhaged money right and left uh, and eventually were superseded by the telegraph line and kind of shut down. Um, they did carry military uh, information, government information that connected California to the east during this period of secession and the Civil War. So it was important in that regard. But for most average Americans, you would never send anything via the Pony Express. Uh, but it sounds like they had really good PR because uh, the, the name Pony Express seems to reverberate. Did a lot of mail get lost or waylaid in the early days? 
Uh, less than you would expect. I think one thing that I was surprised at in doing a lot of research uh, was that the U.S. Post in the 1800s was both faster and more efficient than one would expect, given the fact that there, you know, there were no cars, there were no planes, anything like that. Um, but it's also difficult to measure because, much like today, people like to complain. So if things did get lost, they're going to probably mention it. Whereas if you think about the billions of letters that are going through the mail each year successfully, no one's necessarily going to remark on that. Back to the idea of myths. The story of the early post office really does run counter to another powerful Western narrative of the self-reliant cowboy and the pioneer of the Wild West. It's really more of a big government story, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, So I think most of us, myself included, grew up on Hollywood Westerns uh, and the pop culture idea of the West is filled with cowboys and Indians, with uh, covered bonnets and covered wagons moving westward. You don't necessarily see a lot of government officials or agents in that story. But and if, and you if, look if you at, do, they're always kind of bumbling. Oh, bumbling or maybe know. even like evil, you know, uh-huh. kind of coming in to like take their land or something. Um, but the real story of the West in the 1800s and really through the 1900s as well is a story of big government. And so that ranges from everything from uh, the U.S. Army, the military, occupying, conquering the West, waging war against native tribes, uh, all the way up through defense contracts today, right? It really is a story of big government. And what I discovered was that the U.S. Post was at the heart of this story in the 1800s. The U.S. Post's Western expansion really did go hand in hand with violence against indigenous people and dispossession of their lands. Uh, You say the U.S. Post didn't cause settler expansion, but it did make it easier. I wonder how it was for you to come to terms with that aspect of this history. So to maybe explain a little bit more about what what I mean by by that is um, that the U.S. Post functioned as a network that was kind of everywhere in the United States. It was oftentimes one of the first government institutions to appear on the ground as settlers moved into new places. And overwhelmingly in the West, those new new places were on stolen indigenous land. Um, So if you want to take the example of Colorado, for instance, uh, Colorado becomes a federal territory in 1861. At that point, uh, most of Western Colorado was occupied and uh, basically legally owned by groups of Ute native people. And over the course of the 1860s, white settlers continue to encroach on their land and government officials then extract a series of sessions from them via treaties to take uh, millions of acres of land in western Colorado. And in 1873, the so-called Bruno Agreement cedes 3.7 million acres of land in what's today southwestern Colorado, the San Juan Mountains. There's been a series of gold strikes at the time, so white prospectors are kind of uh, streaming onto this land illegally. The government forces uh, you people to cede this land. And within literally uh, a month or two, the U.S. Post opens up its first post office there. As you say, it's often the first sign in, a, in an established community of those white settlers. Exactly. Three years later, there's 20 post offices up and running. And I think it's hard to convey just how remote and inaccessible this part of the country was at the time. Southwestern Colorado, even if you go there today, right? It's mountainous. Uh, it's hard to get to in the 1870s, even more so. Despite that, right, thousands of white prospectors are able to stream into this part of the, of the state, 
uh, and then also immediately have access to the mail system that connects them to the wider world. So they can stay connected with family or friends. And just as importantly, they can also send news back to places like Denver about new mining strikes, further fueling more prospectors coming into this part of the country. That wouldn't have been possible as easily and as quickly without something like the U.S. Post and its ability to expand into these really distant places. The mail system is a form of power, and it's political power as well. I mean, I think about how political literature is sent and how that would have connected folks with Washington. And we can't underestimate that power early on. For sure. Uh, So again, thinking about just how distant a lot of these places are, but you know, despite the fact that you might be living dozens of miles away from a major town, you can still get the mail once or twice a week. And that's going to allow you to keep up to date with, you know, Democrat and Republican wrangling in Washington, the latest election news. Think about how plugged in we are today. Americans in the 1800s also cared a lot about politics. And the mail was what allowed them to stay connected to these political systems, too. But as the postal system expanded, you write, Indigenous people were not well served by it. Maps in your book show how few post offices existed on reservations and native lands to serve native people. Do you see that reverberate today? It's a really telling pattern from the time. Um, If you look at a map of the U.S. postal system in the 1800s, it's this really, really dense system. There's post offices every kind of 10 miles or so. But as soon as you run up against the borders of a government-run Indian reservation starting around the 1870s, that coverage basically grinds to a halt. And you'd have a post office at an Indian agency or an army fort. Um, Native people still were able to use the mail despite that lack of access. But that is a kind of uh, general lack of access in government services that you do continue to see today on a lot of uh, reservations. I I loved, in reading this book, Realizing that historians so often rely on letters, I mean, epistolary relationships so often drive the historical narratives that we know, and remarkably little has been written about the conveyance of those letters, getting them in the mail. So you're doing a kind of almost a meta history in some ways. Will you reflect on why you think there's been so little written about the post office I suppose, in comparison to how much is written about letters themselves. I think when things are everywhere, you tend to take them for granted, right? Um, Think about the number of times you pull out your cell phone today and send a text message uh, without any kind of understanding, again, myself included, or thinking about what's the infrastructure that allows those typed words to transmit, you know, halfway across the country to a friend, let's say. And I think that's the same way in the 1800s. The, The U.S. Post was everywhere. Americans took it for granted. They were able to send mail, uh, postcards, letters, newspapers all across the country. And uh, remarkably, little of them kind of stopped to reflect on that. I think that carries through to historians looking at their letters as well. We're much more interested in the content of those letters rather than thinking about how did they get from, say, New York to Denver. Lest you hear this conversation and think that this book is purely processy, I'll disabuse you of that notion because there are a lot of people in these pages and a lot of personal stories. You wanted to bring to life the early post office through families. Tell us about someone you encountered, a historical figure, who, you know, it kind of illustrates the history you're trying to tell. 
it's an interesting uh, way of looking at these large systems, right? So thinking about a, a network that encompasses tens of thousands of post offices, what I realized was you can't understand what it means, its historical significance, without zooming down to the ground level. Uh, so in my case, I ended up following the story of four orphans, uh, the Curtis family, who were born in Ohio, kind of scattered to different family members, but eventually all of them ended up migrating to the Western United States. And there's a surviving archive of letters that they exchanged over about four decades. And reading through those letters, you start to understand not just the content, right, where they're sharing news about family, friends, uh, cousins, but really the fact that no matter where they move, they're able to stay connected to each other. And so the youngest one, uh, Benjamin Curtis, ends up in the backwoods of Arizona trying to start a ranch, right? He's in the middle of nowhere. But despite that fact, He's able to send a letter to his two older sisters in San Francisco, hundreds of miles away, uh, telling them about the birth of their niece, and then receive, uh, receive gifts from them in exchange through the mail that arrives in about five days. And also able to subscribe to half a dozen newspapers from across the country, magazines, right? So despite the fact that he is living in the middle of nowhere in the 1880s, he is incredibly connected to the wider world. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ryan. Cameron Blevins is an associate history professor at CU Denver. His book is Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and the Making of the American West. We spoke back in July. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that keeps on delivering. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.